Hi guys and welcome. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, artist, memoir writer, bipolar psychiatric survivor, and your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast, the place that offers an alternative perspective on mental illness, highlighting creativity, non-conventional healing, and breaking on through to the other side. If you are ready for a new narrative on the mental realm that celebrates crazy and cool without penalty, then Not As Crazy As You Think is for you. Hello, everyone. This is Jen Gata Siciliano and Not As Crazy As You Think podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I want to take a look at a well-known disorder in the DSM Bible, Attention Deficit Disorder, ADD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. According to the CDC, the estimated number of children ever diagnosed with ADHD according to a national 2016 parent survey, is 6.1 million, which breaks down to 388,000 children aged 2 to 5 years, 2.4 million children aged 6 to 11 years, 3.3 million children aged 12 to 17 years. But is it biological or environmental? Key TV, a news station in Nebraska, ran a story two days ago about the rising epidemic. Reporter Quanisha Fraser writes in the supporting online article, Physical Health versus Mental Health, Parents, Doctors Talk About the Pandemic's Impact on ADHD. In reference to our 2020 year of isolation and Zoom school, Psychiatrists say COVID-19 has had an impact on kids with behavioral disorders. And since the pandemic, psychiatrists are reporting they are seeing even more children with signs of ADD. And according to an NBC News story on February 16, 2021, 56% say school stress has been worse than usual during the pandemic. In the complimentary online article by Olivia Solon entitled The Great Attention Deficit, More Parents Seek ADHD Diagnosis and Drugs for Kids to Manage Remote Learning, two dozen parents, pediatricians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and researchers all described a crisis among children suffering from inattention and declining school performance. As a result, ADHD diagnoses and prescriptions for related medications have soared. Concerned parents are flooding a support line set up by CHAD, or Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a nonprofit that supports people with ADHD. The incoming calls rose by 62% since the pandemic started. Said psychologist Keith Sutton, director of the Bay Area City for ADD, ADHD, there was a sharp increase in inquiries, particularly during the fall, especially after falling grades were released in October. But even psychiatrists admit that having these symptoms does not necessarily mean your child has ADHD. While ADHD might be an explanation, the stress of a pandemic may also cause inattention. The pandemic has disrupted the routines of every American family, and consequently, many kids have trouble paying attention to things like online school, a setup that was nobly but quickly thrown together with the hope that it would at least resemble classroom learning. A compassionate understanding of this phenomenon would see changes in behavior as normal, not mentally ill for life. 
I would venture to say this anxiety, stress, and inattention is felt by the majority of Americans since COVID became part of our reality. I think anyone who has had school-aged children this year will agree that with the shift to remote learning and social isolation, anxiety and stress have developed in so many of our kids. The treatment for ADD? The American Academy of Pediatrics has guidelines for treating ADHD. Medication and behavioral therapy. Those who receive both often do the best. But you must know going in that psychiatry would not exist without big pharma. So when you seek out a psychiatrist for help instead of a therapist, you are inviting a drug dealer into your life quite possibly forever, and your child is the lifelong future customer. Psychostimulants or stimulants are the most commonly used ADHD drugs, including names like Adderall, Dexedrine, and Ritalin. But how did brain meds for kids become a solution? And how did psychiatry become the most revered legal drug-pushing agency of all time? There's a history. The DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Association, is the sole reference that contains the standard criteria for the classifications of mental disorders, and its validity is based entirely on the biomedical point of view, which completely bolsters the pharmaceutical industry and its mammoth power. Big Pharma was creeping into the field since the late 1980s, and by the late 90s, it was clear the field had fully submitted to biochemistry as the cause for mental illness, the only cause, which reduced people to a skin sack of neurotransmitters and faulty genetics. But not everyone in the field agrees that the explanation of biological cause is the only interpretation of mental illness. In December 1998, psychiatrist Lauren Mosier resigned from the American Psychiatric Association and in a scathing letter pointed to the scientific dishonesty that had erupted in the practice. He states, At this point in history, in my view, psychiatry has been almost completely bought out by the drug companies. The APA could not continue without the pharmaceutical company's support of meetings, symposia, workshops, journal advertising, grand round luncheons, unrestricted educational grants, etc., etc. By the time senior writer for Time magazine Jeffrey Kluger explored the issue of medicating kids in his cover story, Are We Giving Kids Too Many Drugs? in 2003, the explosive increase in pharmaceutical prescriptions already had full support from the field of psychiatry. By the turn of the millennium, Big Pharma had become enmeshed seamlessly into its framework. In October 2011, the open letter to the DSM-5 was posted as an online petition. To the surprise of its authors, the petition was supported by 15,000 individuals and over 50 professional organizations, including 15 additional divisions of the American Psychological Association. One of the major concerns in question was the changes being made to the definitions of mental disorders, placing more emphasis on biological theory than on socio-environmental factors. It was in that edition when the overused ADHD label just entered a new grouping of the DSM-5 as a neurodevelopmental disorder, which suggests a definitive biological basis. When a person's biology is the exclusive thing to blame, 
it's easier to accept that there are no deeper issues in society that need fixing. And who knows if these kids might challenge the status quo one day with innovation and creativity and subsequently make the world a better place if allowed to reach their truest potential. Another major concern in the open letter to the DSM-5 was that the addition of more psychiatric labels can lead to overdiagnosing, which runs rampant in the education system. When my son Jack was 11, for instance, the ideal age for spotting ADHD, his teacher told me that if I wanted to get extra services in language arts, to just swing by his pediatrician's office to pick up a slip with an ADHD diagnosis. It's that easy, she said. The fact that he has the kind of imaginative sensibility of a musician didn't matter. And yet here he is at 14, unlabeled and unmedicated and doing absolutely fine. In fact, in my household, remote learning has actually helped my son. Being able to be home and do stuff at his own pace calms his otherwise scattered energy. And without dealing with bullies at school, he has grown in confidence and personal self-esteem. There was no option for Jack because I don't subscribe to the priests of psychiatry, nor the oppressors of Big Pharma. My only option was to give him more of my attention at home, but I had the ability to do so this year because I was out of work. Many parents could not give the same amount of time and attention to their kids, even if they were working from home, because they were in the office. Since parents have no other options presented to them, because the medical field considers all other options not valid, because research has failed to offer alternative studies, they resort to what's offered to them. The biological model is solely responsible for convincing the masses that mental disorders emerge from disruption in normal brain function. We are taught that the physiology of the brain is responsible for complex behaviors, thoughts, and emotions. And the advances of neuroscience recently are further determining the way psychiatric illnesses are diagnosed and treated. Stated in the 2017 report by the World Psychiatric Association Lancet Psychiatry Commission on the Future of Psychiatry, quote, Neurobiology is rapidly expanding the understanding of psychiatric illnesses, such as depression, anxiety, and psychosis. Appreciation of the neuroscience underlying mental illness has now extended far beyond the caricature of so-called chemical imbalance. Additionally, psychodynamic concepts such as people's sense of self and identity, unconscious motivations, and defenses and drives are increasingly understood in terms of cognitive neuroscience. With an increased emphasis on the underlying pathophysiology, future advances in neuroscience are likely to transform the way psychiatric illnesses are diagnosed and treated. End quote. A reminder, the field of psychiatry knows there are no tests for this so-called brain dysfunction. Their science is only a descriptive list of behaviors. By definition, ADHD is a condition that affects a person's behavior out of the normal range for a child's age and development. And according to their science, what are the causes? The exact cause of ADHD is unknown. It could be that the neurotransmitters, including dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline, 
may work differently from their peers. But we don't know because there are no biological tests given, such as the imaging scans they often refer to in their research. So what are these symptoms of ADD? According to the DSM, a child who has inattention symptoms fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play, does not seem to listen when spoken to directly, does not follow through on instructions, has difficulty with organization, avoids or dislikes tasks that require sustained mental effort, such as schoolwork, often loses items and is easily distracted. And there are those kids who have hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms, those who fidget with their hands or feet or squirm in their seat, children who leave their seat when remaining seated is expected, who run about or climb in inappropriate situations, who have difficulty playing or working quietly, who talk excessively, blurt out answers before questions have been completed, have difficulty awaiting a turn, interrupts or intrudes on others, butts into conversations or games. As a teacher in my past life, I can openly admit I have witnessed this kind of behavior day in and out. But why would I believe my student's brain is not working as it properly should? Because I don't like the fact that he can't sit still. I never attributed it to brain dysfunction as a person who has been labeled for life by the very same theories knowing full well of psychiatry's philosophical charade. It's their reality. Don't buy into it. Guys, it's not a science. They're describing behaviors, and they take a whopping few hours, maybe if you're lucky, to determine your child's future and explain to you how he has brain dysfunction. It is tragic what we are forcing our children to believe about themselves. And how does one qualify for a diagnosis? Children only need to have six attention symptoms or six hyperactivity impulsivity symptoms with some symptoms present before age seven. The symptoms must be present for at least six months, seen in two or more settings, and not caused by another problem. The symptoms must be severe enough to cause significant difficulties in many settings, including home, school, and in relationship with peers. Information about ADD can be found all over the internet and in countless studies, but parents can receive guidance on the ADD Resource Center website at addrc.org. It offers parents, children, and adults consultation, educational and coaching services, career and business counseling, study and organizational skills training, and behavior management. So beyond meds, there are recommended courses of action in behavioral therapy, which includes talk therapy, a system of rewards and consequences to help guide their child's behavior, keeping a consistent daily schedule, including regular times for homework, meals, and outdoor activities, getting a healthy, varied diet with plenty of fiber and basic nutrients, getting enough sleep, getting praise and rewarded for good behavior, and providing clear and consistent rules for the child. According to the website, however, the prognosis for ADD kids is dim. They claim that about half of children with ADHD will continue to have troublesome symptoms of inattention or impulsivity as adults. 
Remember, with no available biological tests, they assert it is a long-term chronic condition for which there is no cure. And if it is not treated appropriately by psychiatric measures, ADHD may lead to drug and alcohol abuse, problems keeping a job, trouble with the law. Quite possibly, if left to their own devices, these kids might do better in life than normal people. This prediction psychology or fortune-telling of a child's future with no other evidence except the behavior of today is based on scare tactics. It is a belief system driven by faith, supported through studies, initiated by the pharmaceutical companies. What is normal? What this generation in charge of the world is saying to young people is you don't have the right to be different and one day cause positive change in the world to create something new and unpredictable. So it is clear that no other options are offered to parents who are forced to put their kids on brain meds without knowing the long-term effects. Because allopathic medicine, or Western evidence-based medicine, is so dominant in our culture, stimulant medication treatment and behavioral treatment are currently the two main child ADHD treatments with the strongest research support. But alternative remedies have become popular, including herbs, supplements, and chiropractic manipulation. However, there is little or no solid evidence for many remedies marketed to parents. But because standard research does not exist, it doesn't mean that all personal anecdotes don't count. In fact, they may offer a more accurate account of what does work as an alternative. Many parents don't know where to turn. And to make it very clear, I don't villainize any parent who is taking the road that the psychiatrist who has promised to help your child is recommending for you. Sometimes a person needs a little assistance to help them get back on track. But that's all I think medication should be doing, not fixing some kind of predicted lifelong biological illness for which there are no biological tests and only subjective interpretation on survey forms filled out by annoyed teachers and alarmed parents. We also know through neuroscience that even the adult brain is changeable and plastic. With the right influences, a person can change over time. But to psychiatry, this is a false concept. So they convince us there is no alternative to their best treatment. Well, I challenge them with this. I believe we have free will and that we can grow. And there are all kinds of alternatives out there. But you can only discover them when you seek them. Don't be convinced there is only one way. Katie's family didn't buy that. They tried something new, and with huge success. Here's her account. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, your host. And today we have Katie, who's a good friend of mine, who decided to come on board and share some of her experiences with the label of what she received and therapies that she chose to take on rather than medication. So let me ask you this. How did you become acquainted with a psychiatric institution, Katie? And what personal experiences led you or your family to believe that you needed their involvement? Well, my parents divorced at a very young age. And when I was young, I did have like a very traumatic experience. So I was later on 
around maybe nine or 10 ish around there. I was diagnosed with ADHD. And so I didn't really have anything to do with any sort of psychiatric like medication or a psychologist. I've been to therapists, but never a psychologist. And that's a common misconception because those two things are very different. Mm -hmm. But people think like, oh, they both deal with the brain. No, it's very different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I went to a neuropathic therapist for close to four to six years around there. Wow. Instead of doing the medication, you went and did that alternative therapy. Yes, for my ADHD. Okay. And can you describe that to us a little bit? What exactly is that? Yeah, of course. It's um, they stick wires to, well, it's different for everybody, but um, they stick wires to a very specific part of your brain. For me, it was towards the middle on my right side and towards the back on my left side. Then they put it on both earlobes. And so then they have like all sorts of levels they have to play with to make sure that they get it exactly right for me. So it's very different for everybody. No two um, neuropathic patients are the same, they've Mm. said to me a bunch of times. So after they put these things on you, like what do they do after that? I just sit in a chair and watch a movie. That's basically it. So if I'm unfocused, the movie screen gets smaller. If I'm focused, it gets bigger. And if I stay focused on the screen, it stays big. And so um, I did that for like once a week for a while. Then I did it twice a week. Then I did it once a month. Then I did it once every month, every other month. And I eventually phased out of it a few years ago. Wow. So over the course of, you said, four to six years. Around there, yeah. Wow. I think that's fascinating because honestly, I've never heard of that therapy before. And clearly it was substitutional. Now, you had at first sat in front of a psychiatrist. They labeled you and they wanted to give you medication. Is that right? And then your mother wasn't a big fan of it? I don't fully know if they ever really wanted to give me medication, but my mom has always been against medication. It's always been a big old no. So she's found like multiple ways, like different sort of like any sort of therapy or anything like that, where I wouldn't necessarily go to a psychiatrist, I went to therapists. And come to think of it, I've never been on any type of medication. Which is great, actually. Yeah, it's amazing. So, And do you feel like right now in terms of, you know, your concentration levels or the things that the behaviors and the experiences you were having that would uh, lead them to label with you with ADHD, are those under control or stabilized? Definitely. Um, Before, like all the treatment that I've had, I probably wouldn't be able to like focus with this conversation. Like I would have, by now I would have already lost my train of thought. Wow. Like 30 seconds and I wouldn't remember what I was saying, if that makes sense. So it was almost like a kind of a training of helping you Mm -hmm. focus. Exactly. Wow. So that's like kind of like behavior modification over putting something in your biology that controls your thoughts in a way but it's it isn't necessarily like restrictive where it's something that 
will harm you later on in life. Like it's not going to do anything like that. It's not like uh, shock therapy where it would hurt you. Right. Electroshock therapy. Right. Yeah. It's all very laid back, actually. It's basically you just like almost they put wires on your head. You watch a movie. And that's basically it. That's amazing because it's so like non-invasive. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I was on the worst medications ever in the 1990s, they were neuroleptics. There were times I couldn't talk. I couldn't read. I couldn't, you know, I had tremors. I mean, then they didn't really even care. They're like, well, you know, we're controlling your problems, you know, and I'm thinking, I didn't think it was that big of a problem, but okay, you know, you're controlling my problems. You became, I became a different person. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you could still be you, walk out of there, be part of a treatment plan, you got a good support system, it sounded like. It was insane. Like, um, in the same building, I went to tutoring as well. So I'd go right across the hall from tutoring to um, the neurotherapy. And then after neurotherapy, at one point, I would go to a therapist. And that was just like a regular Wednesday afternoon for mm -hmm. quite a few years. And it was just the easiest thing. Like, I trusted all of those people immensely. Like, um, the doctor that is in charge of all the neurotherapy. Let me put it this way. My family, we were one of, we were some of her first patients ever. Wow. Um, when she was just starting out, we ended up going to her. And up until the three of us stopped, my mom, my sister and I, until we all stopped, we would, my mom would like text with her. We'd talk to her all the time. I saw her in a movie theater once and she remembered me even mm -hmm. like four years later after I stopped going. That's amazing because, you know, a lot of the times they just see you as the patient and they are the, mm -hmm. you know, the authority. And this sounds like there was like this kind of back and forth relationship. Yeah. They got to know you. And that's really great that you had that support because it's not always the case if in, in many therapeutic environments. And as I said, you know, how I feel about the, the psychiatric situation. Now, when you mm -hmm. received this, this label, how old were you? I was probably around nine or 12 when I was, when I was told I had ADHD. Did you tell people about it or was it like kind of a hushed thing? Well, obviously my family knew. I do remember telling quite a few of my friends, but it wasn't a big thing. Mm -hmm. But I also remember no one else really telling me they had it, which made me feel kind of alone mm. in the sense where I thought I was the only one. Like you don't see people with on TV that have ADHD and you don't see people on TV with a bunch of mental plain disabilities. Like you don't see um, any sort of representation there. So as a kid growing up, that was kind of hard. It made me feel kind of alone. Wow. But later on, I found out that some of my friends did have it. They just didn't say anything because they thought that they'd be labeled as like not normal. Right. So. Right. I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that there's no representation in many creative aspects it's kind of like if you get labeled you're in that group and these are all the normal people you know that's one of the things i push back against with the psychiatry because they really actually believe that there's something wrong with you until the day you die mm -hmm. and it's interesting that you experience this alternative treatment that i don't think many people know about so thank you for sharing that with us of course your personal story it, it's very valuable to many people so thank you of course. Thank you for having me. This is fun.
Thanks for listening to Not As Crazy As You Think, and don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And remember, mental health is attainable for anyone, especially those labeled with mental illness. Until next time, peace out.